Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm the host of today's special edition episode, NP Education Specialist Eve Roberts, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AMP's monthly podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to MPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. With over half of Americans affected by overweight or obesity, the holidays can be a particularly stressful time. This podcast will provide helpful strategies on how to break the vicious cycle of increased stress, decreased sleep, and increased obesity, especially during the holiday season. I also want to let you know that AMP is developing a multi-module CE activity entitled Clinical Advantage Bootcamp Obesity Management Fundamentals, scheduled to launch in late December in the AMP CE Center. It is my pleasure to welcome our experts for today's podcast, nurse practitioner Sharon Free and Angie Golden. Sharon and Angie, please take a few moments to introduce yourselves to our audience. My name is Sharon Free, and I'm the Associate Dean for Research, Evaluation, and Development at the University of South Alabama College of Nursing, and my area of expertise is obesity bias and stigma and healthy home habits, and my research focus is really preparing nurse practitioners to really effectively implement obesity strategies in terms of reducing obesity bias and stigma. And my co-host today is Dr. Angie Golden, and Dr. Golden owns NP Obesity Treatment Clinic, where she provides evidence-based obesity treatment. She earned OMA Certification of Advanced Education and Obesity Management and is the Specialist Certification of Obesity Professional Education, which is an internationally recognized certification. And I'm really delighted to join with Angie talking about the impact and the effects of situational stress on weight and how to effectively handle stress. Angie, can you start out by just sharing how you define stress? Thanks, Sharon, and I'm thrilled to be with you here to do this, one of my all-time favorite obesity researchers. So I think it is important for us to define stress, I think for ourselves, but also for our patients. Because oftentimes we think of stress as being a totally emotional situation, but also because we sometimes think of stress as just an acute situation where it happens and it goes away, but it can be acute or chronic. And it's more than an emotional experience because it has biochemical, physiological, cognitive, and even behavioral changes And the whole time that's happening, our bodies are attempting to alter the event or change the effects of the event. So I think that's really part of the issues when we start to talk about towards the end of it, of how to effectively handle stress. We really are going to be talking about how to work on those physiologic, cognitive, biochemical occurrences in the body and how to change those effects. So I think that 
is pretty fascinating, but I also think it's interesting because stress is really a biochemical hormonal response. And so it really pairs up to understand that obesity is also a hormonal basis. And so they really have a lot in common. So these definitions are fine and maybe got a little more technical than than what we were going to talk about initially. But I think, Sharon, how does that relate to what you see with stress and obesity from a more um, experienced situation? Well, Angie, thank you for sharing that. I think it really first helps to really identify the physiological changes. And I think overall, obesity has so many causes. You know, it's genetic, environmental, lifestyle. But you know, one area that we often overlook is the impact of stress and the role that stress plays with obesity. Stress can play a role in the development as well as the maintenance of obesity. Research has found that the majority of the U.S. population, they report a moderate to high level of stress on a daily basis. And you know, Angie, our body's system is designed to help us escape possible life-threatening situations by releasing glucose into the bloodstream, into our muscles, to give us energy. And this is what we call the fight-or-flight situation. And this is where, you know, we need to run or, you know, in situations that we need to make a fast move. However, having constant stress, we're not running that off. We are sitting, dealing with stress, and glucose is being released into our blood system and muscles. And the stress that we often experience are not physical, but they're psychological stress, they're work stress, they're family stress, finances, um, communicational stress. And the psychological stress impacts the body the same way as if we were in a physically challenging situation with the glucose being released, and it has no place to go except to be expended, it's not going to be expended. So instead, it gets deposited as body fat. And stress can major have a major impact on our cognitive processes and self-regulation, what can lead to overeating, consuming foods higher in sugar and fats and calories. Current stresses and life stressors really play an important role in contributing to the level of stress that an individual experiences. Angie, what is the impact of stress that you found on stimulating the production of the biochemical hormones and peptides? So as you are well aware, I'm kind of a pathophysiology geek. So I'm always looking at what the pathophysiology is of obesity, but also the things that impact our patients or people who live with obesity. And I love some of the things that you talked about there, how the fight or flight situation comes in even when we're having that emotional or psychological stress. And I think in today's world, here we are in the holiday season where that's always a little stressful for many people, but now we've added on top of that, this pandemic. So what happens, there are three main hormones of stress. And the first one is cortisol. Cortisol has a lot of really good roles inside our body. But it's critical to our discussion today about stress and obesity because it actually triggers the process that can lead to weight gain. First of all, cortisol can actually promote eating. It increases ghrelin, the hunger hormone, 
and it decreases leptin sensitivity in the brain. So that means that our brains can't recognize that we're full. You already talked about how it causes a release of glucose into the system with the design to be run away from that saber-toothed tiger. But in reality, we're not getting rid of it. We're not using it for physical activity. So you're right. The liver goes, hmm, look at all this glucose. I don't have anything to use it for. So let me repackage it into triglycerides and store it for when I do need it. But then cortisol adds to that by saying, let's take that fat deposition and store it someplace where we know it's safe. And that's in the visceral area. So that cortisol does all of those things. Now, dopamine and norepinephrine, who thinks about those when we talk about obesity and stress? But when we talk about them in that way, when dopamine is released because of stress, it actually codes in the brain for pleasure and enhances the desire for food. And you mentioned how we see people eating more carbohydrates and higher fat content. That's directly related to the dopamine release. Then we get norepinephrine. And norepinephrine actually goes to the brain and sensitizes the reward center in the brain. So when people say, I am so stressed and I crave grandma's chocolate chip cookies, that's a hormonal response to that stress. Now I'm going to add a little bit more into what that means for our patients who are living with obesity. When they sensitize that reward center, that may be leading in a chronic stress situation to emotional eating. So we know that stress may be impacting that in other ways besides the dopamine and norepinephrine. The other thing that it can stress can do is that it can undermine the self-regulatory eating that happens with executive functioning. But Sharon, and you probably know this because I know you do a lot of research, but stress actually triggers changes in the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Again, we're back to that reward center. And we know that obesity has a lot of inflammation that causes a problem in the hypothalamus. So when you add the two together, it's pretty easy to see how that can increase the consumption of food. And I know, Sharon, that that you've seen studies that support the issues around stress and emotional eating especially. So what are you seeing as you read the literature about this? Well, Angie, you know, it's interesting. The literature really supports this. You know, one study identified that 39% of individuals indicate that they either overeat or eat unhealthy foods in response to stress. And studies have also found that stress and BMI are related. There is a positive relationship between stress and weight gain. And, you know, research has looked so much at daily stress levels, workplace stress, and they've really identified that when work stress is high, individuals report that they eat much more foods with high sugar and high fat content. So it really triggers a desire for those type of foods. So the literature really supports the issues around stress and emotional eating. And Angie, I know that 
um, many of us have had episodes of emotional eating. Um, but what about activity? Is there any change for people when they experience stress and activity? So the studies around stress and activity aren't quite as strong as the studies you've talked about with emotional eating or overeating. But we have seen studies that have demonstrated, especially around sleep, that the lack of sleep or shortened sleep decreases the amount of physical activity. But this is actually bi-directional. The lack of physical activity can cause a disruption in sleep. So we see a lot of the, the studies that talk about that relationship of stress and physical activity. Really getting to the heart of that, though, as I mentioned, is a little bit more difficult because there's so many processes involved and they're not always easily defined. Stress can immobilize individuals, and that can certainly lead to less physical activity. And then less physical activities can impact, again, the sleep cycle. So we get this kind of cycle going on here with the relationship between stress and physical activity. Another issue is that stress, again, I mentioned this in eating, but it undermines our self-regulatory executive functioning. So people who are under chronic stress often have a difficult time with follow-through on desired activities. In fact, a study of 12,000 participants found that the higher the stress, the less likely they were to have any increase in exercise or activity. That said, there is a small percentage of people, I wish I was one of them, that when they're under stress, they have more physical activity. They exercise because of the stress that they're under. But it's a pretty small percentage. So it's important for us to remember that there are some of our patients living with obesity that are under this chronic stress and they'll end up finding that their activity increases. But that's the, the minority, not the majority. So we've already covered a lot. We've talked about stress and eating, stress and activity. But one of the areas that I believe is really important, and I talk to my patients about it early on in their treatment of obesity, is sleep. I know the connection between sleep and obesity but is there a connection between stress and sleep? Yes, Angie, that's really an area that's been studied a great deal. There's a, the relationship between stress, sleep, and obesity are intricately related. For example, when one has shorter sleep times, they are less likely to engage in physical exercise. A lack of sleep can also add to stress, and then stress has a negative impact on sleep length and quality. So you can see how they're really, it's like a vicious cycle. They're all, they work together. And how many of you know, and I've been guilty of this, you have a stressful day, maybe something really bothers you at work or a family situation. How many of us have a hard time falling asleep because we replay the scenario, we think about it, or even if we wake up in the middle of the night, we kind of our mind is suddenly drawn back to that stressful situation. And that can really impact, Angie, the quality of our sleep, the length of our sleep. So you can see how stress can really impact sleep. And then sleep also really impacts our ability 
to eat healthy, and it, there's a correlation with less sleep and obesity. So the three of them together play an incredible role in really the whole obesity component. And I think it's the vicious cycle is often very difficult to break. It can persist for years in an individual's life, which can really add to weight gain and obesity. And Angie, I know you're like the pathophysiology expert and all your teaching and what you've done. What have you found in your work and your reading about the mechanism of sleep and weight? Well, you know, I think when we go through all of the literature, what we find is bringing it down to about four mechanisms that can help tie sleep, especially poor sleep, to higher weight. First of all, there's actually a direct physiologic pathway. If someone is having shorter sleep, it decreases their thermogenesis over 24 hours. So they've decreased their 24-hour energy expenditure. And I don't think many of us think about sleep as a way to make sure that our energy expenditure is as high as it can be. So isn't it interesting that during a time when we think of rest and decreased activity, we actually are impacting the overall thermogenesis for the body over a 24-hour time frame. And then, of course, and many of us feel this during the holidays or have felt it through this pandemic, that poor sleep promotes fatigue. That's easy. We all know that. Even if it's only been perhaps we've flown across the country to visit family and the time zone difference can cause fatigue. Poor sleep promotes fatigue, which can, again, likely decreases energy expenditure and reduces our physical activity, thereby increasing sedentary behavior. So again, we're back to that energy expenditure that fatigue can add to decreasing. And then people who have poor sleep, the studies clearly show that they report being hungrier. In fact, a couple of studies have actually shown that poor sleep increases ghrelin, again, that hunger hormone. So they're right, they are hungrier. And we talked a little bit previously about what happens in that HPA axis. And because of what happens in the reward center when we're fatigued and we're stressed, we eat higher fat, higher carbohydrates. That's even though those aren't the foods that might fuel us the best, they're the ones that our brain ends up asking for when we're fatigued. And that's likely based on the change in appetite regulating hormones. Finally, and I, this is kind of common sense, but I know I certainly didn't think about it before I started doing a lot of research on sleep for my patients, especially those who have sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome. The fewer hours spent sleeping means you're awake longer and you actually could have more time to eat. Now, the research isn't tremendously compelling on this, but it does kind of make common sense that if you're awake longer, you have more hours where food could be impacting you. So I think that's all important. But Sharon, there's an area that you are absolutely the NP expert on. And so I really think that I would like to bring that in. Um, I know that we have biology that supports that obesity and stress affect the HPA, but your research in bias and stigma 
probably has some of the most powerful support on how obesity is a stressor. So I wonder if you could share a little bit of that with with our audience. Angie, I'm happy to. This is an area that I'm so passionate about, and I have loved working with you on this too, Angie, and studies and publishing on this. But you know, obesity bias and stigma are reported in areas, individuals' life, and people report obesity bias and stigma as one of the greatest stressors. And I think it's important for us as providers to realize the incredible stress our patients feel experiencing obesity bias and stress. They experience it with their family, with school or employment. And these individuals experience on a daily basis. And you know, the research has found that obesity stigma is more common than other biases and stigma. A study of women, um, they found that with obesity, that 54% reported weight stigma from coworkers or colleagues, and 43% reported weight stigma from employers or supervisors. Women in general experience weight discrimination at lower body weights than men. And interestingly, Younger women with obesity reported much more stigma than individuals who are older. And you know, obesity bias and stigma can really cause discrimination in employment and education, which can ultimately lead to lower social economic status, which in and of itself is a risk factor for obesity. And studies have found that individuals with obesity have higher unemployment rates and spend fewer years employed which can lead to stress. So obesity bias and stigma in and of itself, Angie, induces so much stress and leads to the pathways that we discussed that can cause obesity. So I think that as providers, we always have to be cognizant and very sensitive to the daily stressors our patients are experienced through obesity bias and stigma. Angie, how does through all of your work and your study, how does obesity stigma actually affect cortisol reactivity? So we're kind of coming back around to the very beginning where we talked about how stress affects cortisol. And, uh, you know, being a person who lives with obesity, since for full disclosure, I have obesity. Uh, It's in a management stage right now. But I've always been fascinated by what happens with stress and cortisol. And then if obesity itself brings in stigma and bias and it is its own stressor, just living with the disease is its own stressor, then it's pretty fascinating to realize that that stress will increase cortisol just like any other stress will. And studies have found that people in stressful situations who are living with obesity have higher cortisol levels. So here we are with another cycle. We talked about it with stress, sleep, eating, and activity. And now we have a cycle where stress increases weight gain and obesity. Obesity in and of itself increases stress. So we just get this cycle going. And I think a lot of what we've been talking about is really to set the stage for this next section which is we've talked about the connections of stress and obesity, but what can we do about it? 
And what can our NP colleagues that are listening do for their patients or help their patients do to stop these cycles? I think that's really our take-home message today. It's why we wanted to do this podcast. It's make sure that people understood how stress and obesity were related, but more importantly, how do we stop the cycle? So Sharon, what are some things that you recommend that you found have been successful? Well, Angie, I know this is an area that we're both so passionate with helping, just even helping providers. And I think my probably biggest take-home message is just to have a heart and to to don't add to individuals' obesity, bias, and stress. And we know that, you know, coming against someone be, with fat shaming or anything unkind, it only adds to their stress. We want to be empathetic, sympathetic, and have a big heart towards these individuals. And I think the, the take-home message, just kind of coming into the holiday season, I think it's so important to help our patients identify common stressors in our life. And this is really probably evident in the holiday season. And I know that as we see patients in the month of December working with our individuals, that holiday seasons come with so many expectations, family commitments, probably our biggest financial expenditures of the year can all play a major role (laughs) in holiday stress. And I think it's so important. What I really encourage my patients to do is just think through their stress how they can avoid some stress or modify some stress as well as their response to stress. And I always encourage people, make a plan. Identify your greatest stressors and practical strategies related to what can be done to decrease that level of stress by planning ahead. It's really okay not to do everything during the holiday season. Pick, Pick and choose wisely. And I think when we know just the physiological impact that stress has on our life, we need to really make a concerted effort to help our patients say, you know what, try to decrease that stress as much as you can. Enjoy the holiday season and plan accordingly. And and really in our life, Angie, just like we would plan our dietary intake, our activity intake, plan ahead on what we can do to decrease the stress in our life. Um, These are some of the things that I would do. Angie, how about, what are some things that you would like to add to that? Well, I love that. And I think that I need to take to heart your permission you just gave me to not have to do everything this holiday season, (laughs) but to pick and choose. Right. Um, And I think that, I think the other thing that I spend a lot of time working with my patients, and I'm sure our NPPA physician colleagues do exactly the same thing is to find a stress reduction technique that patients feel they can own. So you share decision-making. And here I I have what I call my menu of stress reduction techniques that I share with patients. And I ask them to pick two or three and try them and see which one fits for them the best. So mindfulness eating is one that I try to practice on a daily basis. Seven minute Qigong, I have a video that's um, actually on YouTube that is so it's open access, any patient can get to it if they have internet access. And it gives them an opportunity to do what I call movement meditation. Some of us don't do as well sitting and just breathing. 
Um, we need to move when we're meditating, and that's what Qigong can do. But just the simple four-count breathing. You know, so many people have smartwatches, and it has a Breathe app on it. So setting that up so that three times a day, they literally just stop and breathe for one minute. And all they think about is their breath during that minute. The research has shown us that that can interrupt the release of cortisol. Meditation, absolutely for people who are able to do yoga or meditation. I am a HeartMath certified provider and I do a lot of HeartMath work with my patients. And then daily devotions. It doesn't have to take 45 minutes of your day. These can be one minute short times, seven minute short times. But I think your message of plan ahead was so important. And then the message that if they can't come first for themselves, who will they come first for? And so making sure that they're taking that time for themselves. And then I we probably kind of beat this drum pretty hard, but ensuring they're getting good quality and adequate sleep. We've, we've demonstrated that with the pathophysiology discussion that we've had, how important sleep is. So, and I know, Sharon, you've done such wonderful work around family. What do you have that you would recommend our patients and our colleagues be doing around family? Well, you know, I, Angie, families are such an important dynamic. They're central focus in our lives. And, you know, um, one thing that I really encourage families to really make a concerted effort to really promote a positive home environment and really identify with your family what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. This has been a very emotional year. And, you know, and even as family gathers, you know, you can set up what I call ground rules and, you know, to say we're going to have the best family time ever. And, you know, some topics that we're not going to discuss, we're not going to discuss politics, we're not going to discuss anything that would be disturbing. I mean, this, there's been enough disturbing news in this entire year with all that we've gone through. I think mm -hmm. what I really try to do is just, I have found that it really helps with my patients. If I say, you know, in love and just say, we're going to, this will be our best time ever. We're going to set up family ground rules. It's going to be a positive environment. And one area that I've done a lot of work and a lot of research is on just making your home a safe place and a place that people feel loved and welcomed. And one area that I've done a lot of work with is family meals. And I know that the holidays, there's just so much time around the family table. So I'm just going to share a few little things that I do with my family meal talks to help patients. But I make the table, when I just say make the table a safe place. I even call it a sacred place where, you know, turn off the electronics and we say there's no negative talks. It's a place of encouragement, a place of sharing stories. And, you know, there's so much research to show that just a positive communication around the table can really build resilience, a sense of belonging. I'm very purposeful and very strategic. I, I encourage open communication, open-ended questions, affirmation. One thing we do in our family that I've shared and a lot of people have loved implementing is every time we have our family gathering, we have a very large family, but... My husband and I kind of think ahead of some things we want to talk about. And like this year around the t dinner table, I would just say, hey, you know, share some of like 
How did you get through this year? Share the greatest strategy that helped you be successful this year or, you know, or share. And one thing I have done over the years, and I, I have three son-in-laws, so it's been really fun, but I'm like, if you didn't have to work, but you could just do whatever you wanted, what would you want to do? And I found out so much about them. One would love to just be teaching soccer and not be in law. And one would love to be a basketball coach, but, you know, ask them questions. And, and I think sometimes around the table, it's just small talk and that's wonderful. But sometimes I get to the heart of it and it's always really positive. And one other thing I do too is I really am encouraged my parents, the older generation around the table, to share some stories. And the stories that my parents and family have shared around the table are so positive, so encouraging. And then when you leave, you feel like you've known so much more about each other and it just builds it builds family and it builds connection. So those are just some ideas. Um, I could probably do a podcast on just family meals, so I'm not going to spend more time. But um, those are just some of the things. But I think my takeaway is be purposeful and be strategic. Um, so those are just some of the things. And Angie, what are some more ideas that you have that I know it's just important to keep families involved, but what's some ideas that you have as well? So I have to tell you, your family ideas... I, I've listened to you talk about them and I realize how important they are, but I don't think that I've incorporated them into my practice as much as I'd like to. So I'm going to put in my to-do list that before the next day that I'm seeing patients with obesity to have a handout on that family meal idea, because I think that just is so powerful and could be really helpful even though many of us are doing modified family gatherings, we're still doing them, you know, like for us, we're doing them all by Zoom this year, but we're still going to all be together. So I think a way to have that discussion can be really powerful. So, you know, I think here's some other ideas, and I think they fit in so well with what you're saying, but I think from an individual's perspective, really sit down and say, what are some potential unrealistic stressors? I think you hit on that a little bit when you gave me permission not to have to do everything this year. <laughs> and unrealistic expectations and address them early. There was a time when we in our family would always go and cut down our tree. But in our house, we have very tall ceilings. So I never wanted a tree that was less than 18 feet tall. And that's a pretty heavy tree. <laughs> and at one point, my husband and I had to realize that the stress on the two of us to go cut down an 18-foot Christmas tree in the tree cutting area was really unrealistic as we are not as young as we used to be. And so, but it was really hard to do that. And I think addressing those kinds of things early, but around obesity, I think an unrealistic expectation is that all of the foods from childhood can be on the table and that we can walk away from them. So I think that's a really, really powerful thing to be starting to think about with any holiday. Doesn't matter what the holiday is. And then we talked about how beneficial physical activity is to sleep. And since sleep is so important to stress and obesity, taking time to engage in some type of physical activity. I had a blog come across today about this, 
the six out of 60, which was six minutes of every hour, have physical activity, whether that's walking a minute every 10 minutes, or it's the last six minutes of every hour, if you are in a desk bound position, that you get up and walk those six minutes. Thought that was kind of an, an interesting thing to come across right before we were going to do our podcast. Your don't do everything, avoid overbooking. Don't make it so that you have to run from one place to the other. And then I, I think you you nailed it, the pre-planning. I think pre-planning the, the holidays or any calendar as much as possible so that you can really think about not just the commitments, but the meal preparation. And you mentioned this earlier, and we didn't really talk about it, the financial commitment. That can be such an incredible stressor because you're right. This time of year can be the biggest expenditure of our whole year. So Sharon, I really think that we've had a lot of fun today discussing stress and obesity. Most people probably don't think that's called fun, but you and I do. <laughs> we do. <laughs> and how they impact each other. I wonder, as we're coming towards the end of this podcast, if there's a way that we could summarize five points for our listeners to help them take home for themselves, perhaps, but also for their practice. Well, Angie, this is this is a fun. I, I enjoy doing this with you too. And I, when I think about five things, I'm going to preface it with what I tell my patients, my colleagues. Is you know when the, you get on the airplane and they say, in an event of an emergency, put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on your children. My, one of my sayings is put the oxygen mask on yourself first. And I think as we enter this holiday season, we have to take care of ourselves. We have to do self-care and sometimes just say, I have to first and foremost take care of myself because self-care is critical. So my first point is self-care. The second point, we need to really identify that stress plays a really important role in weight regulation. And I think identifying the impact of stress is the first step. And I think I would not take on any extra stress and identify how to reduce the current stress in our life. And lastly, avoid overcommitments. How about you, Angie? So I think for me, the first is, and it probably goes with your self-care, so I'm probably copying a little bit, but that's to take care of yourself each day. And I think you will find that it's incredibly powerful when we as healthcare providers give our patients permission to do that. I've actually written it out as a prescription to a couple of patients. Oh. And that, so that's my first one. The second is learn how to say no. Again, we're, you, that's probably avoiding overcommitments, but learning how to do that in a way that's kind but give yourself permission to do that. Prioritize sleep. Can't say that enough. We know the impact sleep has on stress and obesity. So I would prioritize sleep. And then some type of activity. I have a tendency not to use the word exercise because my patients kind of scrunch their face up at that. But we know that activity and exercise can reduce stress. So getting that planned in there and then 
implement those strategies to reduce stress. And I would really, really recommend that our colleagues help patients actually do one of these in the office with them. So maybe it's the four by four breath count where they breathe in to a count of four, hold the breath to a count of four, breathe out to a count of four, and hold it again. Something as simple as that so that they actually do it with them in, the, in their visit. Whether it's in the office or it's on telehealth, doesn't matter. But help them find a strategy that they can use daily through that shared decision-making, whether it's mindfulness, qigong, heart math, meditation, yoga, daily devotions, prayer. It doesn't matter which one it is but help them find the one that they can use on a daily basis. So those are my five take-home points that I would like for my colleagues to feel like they can take to their practice and use tomorrow. And I also remember that there's more of this coming in the AANPCE Center in late December. There's a lot of obesity information, and I know that you and I both with our passion for patients who are living with obesity, want everybody to do all of those. So Sharon, thank you again for inviting me to be with you on this podcast. And I'll turn it over to you for our last words. Angie, it's been a delight. And you know, something that you said that really struck a chord with me is when you said you actually write on a prescription pad for a patient, you know, taking care of yourself, learn to say no. It's when you said that it just triggered a, a memory of a an amazing study I read years ago that said what we write on a prescription pad people take that to heart so that is such a great idea Angie I, that just caught me I loved it but listen Angie besides being a very dear friend and we both share a same passion about obesity it's been a delight to work to this podcast with you on obesity and stress and I hope that our listeners have a better understanding of the connections of stress and obesity, and maybe perhaps more importantly, learn some new ideas on how to help their patients interrupt the chemical hormonal response to stress. Thanks again for joining me, and it was really a delight to be part of this. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Angie and Sharon. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you and gaining your perspective and insights on this extremely important topic. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your own practice. If you're a nurse practitioner and not currently a member of AMP, I urge you to consider joining your professional organization. Membership gives you access to the AMPCA Center and hundreds of free CE with new activities added weekly. Don't forget that you can learn more about obesity and earn continuing education when Clinical Advantage Bootcamp Obesity Management Fundamentals launches in the CE Center in late December. You can find this activity and many others by visiting aamp.org forward slash CE Center. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes. Mm-hmm.